0: You know it's true, but what can you do? You look for a guy to get out of the truck To fish our suffer Try to break loose Get out of the truck Get out of the noose You know it's true, but what can you do? You look for a guy to get out of the truck To fish our suck
1: This is Hell Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus This is Hell Last month, the former president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma Was jailed for refusing to comply with a corruption inquiry Which is investigating potential crimes committed during his administration Which ended in 2018 Immediately upon his arrest, there has been violence, rioting and looting. At least 337 people have died in what have been South Africa's worst outbreak of violence in decades, with unemployment in South Africa, and an astonishing 42%. It was difficult to tell if the violence was about poverty, food insecurity, and inaccessibility to the basic necessities of life, or if the public was rising up against the jailing of Zuma. The current president of South Africa, Zuma's successor, Cyril Ramaphosa, called the rioting an attempted insurrection, quote-unquote insurrection, a violent uprising against his government. Some commentators were calling it a bread riot by those who simply don't have enough food to eat. But how can this be an insurrection if Ramaphosa and Zuma are from the same political party, the African National Congress, which has been in power since apartheid ended in 1994? It's as if Donald Trump won the election And he was still investigating who was behind the January 6th riots At the U.S. Capitol But that's what happens when you have one-party rule in South Africa As South Africa essentially does All political debates become intra-party debates Leaving no room for any alternative South, Africa, and South Africans are also struggling with whether the rioting was spontaneous or orchestrated With some violence appearing to be of the moment While much of it seems very well planned the spontaneity suggests this is a grassroots social movement opposed to south africans daily deprivations planned att- attacks suggest this is a top-down political movement directed by Zuma's supporters the zupta within the anc but what if it is both what if the anc is not only the movement in the streets fighting for food but also the political movement that is responsible for the food shard- shortage and lack of jobs in a few minutes, we'll try to figure out what the hell is happening in South Africa when we speak with South African writer Nile Reddy, who wrote the dot Country.com article, A Terrifying Vision of South Africa's Future. Nile is a doctoral student in sociology at New York University. You can find Nile's writing at the Alternative Information and Development Center website, aidc.org.za. And you can follow Nile on Twitter at red. Underscore Nile, that's N I A L L. Also on today's show, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at ten a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell in a couple of weeks when we come back from our annual summer break. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin during this week's moment. Jeff seeks relief in our nation's capital. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far?
0: Uh, sometimes you lose your Marx, Mao, and Lenin mug, and the universe provides you a. George Bush Commander-in-Chief mug. So, <laughs> thanks, Universe.
1: So you never saw that, found that mug again, huh? Uh,
0: no, I also got a quarter sheet tray that I left somewhere in the bar that I got to go look for because I got to make cookies for my kid's school.
1: Uh, I can get you access to that after the show. I think it's in the cabinet of where we have all the food usually. My week has been a week filled with anticipation and frustration, anticipation at having a much-needed two-week break, and frustration because the only way we could get two weeks off in a row was for my girlfriend to commit to working online during the second week of our vacation, which sucks. But it got even worse yesterday when we found out her low-cost cell provider no longer supports hotspots, which means she cannot work in the cabin that we rent and must drive like 10 or 15 miles to the local library and work from there. So if there is anyone who is listening right now, who can tell us how my girlfriend can work online without getting a new cell phone service because we just signed a two-year contract with our crappy cheap service, email me at at chuckatthisishell.com because my girlfriend does not want to drive 10 to 15 miles back and forth to the library so she can work remotely. But more important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
0: This week's question from hell in a rich person voice is so... Where are you summering? Where are you summering?
1: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. By the way, uh, earlier this week, I forgot to wish my cold a seven-month birthday, or seven-week birthday. It's now been with me for seven weeks and two days. Good lord, this has gotta end. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at this is or alex at this is But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our interview with Niall Reddy. Again, the question from hell is So where are you Summering We got a guest Suggestion sent to us At Chuck at com From Brad Who writes Hey Chuck I just read a Fascinating article By Benjamin Bratton Professor of visual arts At the University Of California San San Diego He That's my brother's Alma mater uh, He explores the Legacy of a Certain reactionary tradition of Biopolitics and its implications for how We should think about the definition of human In light of the pandemic. He argues that We need instead a positive Biopolitics based On a new rationality of inclusion Care, transformation and prevention And we need a philosophy and a humanities To help articulate it. I think he would be An excellent guest on a very intriguing topic Brad then sends a link To a blog post by Benjamin Bratton At Verso Books website With the headline Agamben WTF Or how philosophy failed the pandemic In reference to Giorgio Agamben A philosopher who studies the concept Of the state of exception Especially how Adolf Hitler Employed the idea for the entire time he ruled Germany Brad Benjamin is an awesome Guest suggestion So awesome that we've already reached out to Benjamin Because he has a new book out from Verso Titled The Revenge of the Real Politics For a Post-Pandemic World However, despite writing a few times, we have not heard back from him or Verso after sending interview requests, so we'll try again over the break, Brad, but thanks for the reminder. Adam also sent a guest suggestion to Chuck at Hell.com. Adam writes, at the top of my guest recommendation list is Roderick Day for his website. RedSales.org S-A-I-L-S .org. There is some sharp stuff on there he wrote uh, himself but I'm even more impressed by all he's compiled from others like obscure interviews with Joseph Stalin, even more obscure words from Asada Shakur from 2000 and Kwame Ture A speech Deng Xiaoping gave in Zimbabwe in 1985 that made me fundamentally change how I look at China. A persuasive defense of tankies and writings from underappreciated contemporary intellectuals like Domenico Lacerdo, Ishe Landa, Tom Frome, and Michael Parenti, who has been on our show several times. If you click the plus sign on the top of their homepage, you can see a chronology with authors and topics. Thank you very much for the suggestion, Adam, and sure enough, I went to RedSales.org and there was an interview with Asada Shakur from the year 2000. There was also a lot of new writing by Roderick on topics like crypto, brainwashing, and feminazis, unbelievably, as well as a post titled A History of Empire Without Empire that was translated from Chinese by Roderick Day. So thanks, Adam. It really is an amazing resource. We also heard from ATEF on Twitter, who told us how he first discovered This Is Hell. ATEF writes, Hi, you wanted to know how we got to This Is Hell. I came to you via the best of the left. Chuck's knowledge, information, sharing, conviction, and determination, which I heard in his voice in spite of his dark humor, got me hooked. A reason to believe that it is possible to stay alive, informed, and funny in This Hell. Thanks. Thank you, ATEF. If you have a guest suggestion or would like to share how you first found This Is Hell, email us at chuckatthisishell.com, and we'll likely share your suggestion or story on air. Coming up, we'll try to figure out who and what is behind the South, South Africa's worst violence in decades. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week, and we will have Jeff. Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, as well as telling you what's happening in the next in a couple of weeks when we're back here on air, and Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is: So, where are you, summering? So, where are you, summering? Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So, you do the math. This is. Hell, South Africa's worst violence in decades has led to hundreds dead. The violence happened immediately following the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma for refusing to comply with an investigation into allegations of corruption. But was this an orchestrated uprising against Zuma's detention by his supporters, or was it a spontaneous explosion of looting and rioting fueled by poverty, inequality, food shortages, and inaccessibility to the basic necessities of life? Or could it be both? Here to help us understand exactly what is happening in South Africa, South African writer Niall Reddy wrote the Africa is a dot com article a terrifying vision of south africa 's future. Welcome to this is hell Nile hi, thank you so much for having me. great to be here. you can follow Nile on Twitter at red underscore nile you write that uh, Predicting a major political shockwave has been standard fare among South African pundits for some time. The sheer depth of the socioeconomic crisis in the country, best encapsulated by a broad unemployment rate of 42%, made it something of a safe bet. Why does South Africa have such high unemployment? Is there a singular problem that drives unemployment, like access to a quality education or job training? Because I got to tell you, Niall, yesterday I put that question into Google and I said, why does South Africa have such high unemployment? The first answer back was lack of an education. Is that the real root
2: cause of the high unemployment rate in South Africa? Uh, look, I mean, there's no simple answer to the question, uh, but I could tell you that that answer, the one that Google gave you is pretty far off the mark. If we're going to try to narrow it down to anything, uh, lack of education, I think is, is definitely one of the, one of the lesser drivers of what's happening in the economy. It's the explanation that tends to be favored, uh, by the business community, by large scale capital in particular, because it's an explanation that I think helps them to divert from the bigger structural changes that are actually needed to get out of this economy. So, so they they tend to they tend to want to set up the unemployment problem as essentially a supply side problem. They were not producing the right skills, we're not giving them enough engineers and stem graduates, etc. If we just did that, then the market would be able to function perfectly according to its own logic. There wouldn't need to be any kind of concerted state intervention. We just need to fix this one supply side question and things will be back on track the reality is it's a it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that it is very much a deep-rooted legacy of the economic structure that we had under apartheid in which you had a very capital intensive um, mining driven economy uh, dominant in south africa that was then drawing uh, labor out of these reserves into which much of the black into which most of the black population had been pushed and then what happened was in the uh, when the ANC comes to power and as your listeners will probably know it came to power at the time it, it had a very sort of social democratic orientation itself it comes into power in alliance with the main trade union movement and the communist party um it it looks like it's going to implement some kind of progressive distributive agenda and gets very quickly uh, pushed in a very different direction through the combined effort of local capital and international capital ends up adopting a quite orthodox neoliberal program and this effectively just guts the economy you have the winds of foreign competition just blow through and create enormous destruction uproot the manufacturing industry and so you suddenly have unemployment shooting up immediately in the post-apartheid period at the same time as these uh, form of the Bantustans, these reserves in which the African population had been held, are now uh, suddenly supplying a hell of a lot more labor. But because we're in this low growth, deindustrializing, neoliberal framework, it just has no capacity to absorb that labor. And so unemployment climbs steadily up until around 35, 36% is what it was, uh, what it's been at over the last sort of decade and a half. And then when the COVID crisis hits, it puts it right up to 42%. And that's about 75% amongst people younger than 28. So just a complete inability of the economy to uh, absorb this level of labor. And so kind of permanent exclusion is what is the condition of, of a giant section of the population.
1: Do you think that when a country does institute uh, neoliberalism, do you think that, that is, uh, it's a typical response of any criticism of uh, neoliberalism is, well, we just lack education and we therefore we cannot produce what we need to produce to have a vigorous economy? Do you, is that a typical ex- excuse when we hear, for instance, the, uh, during the Obama administration or during the Biden administration, during the Trump administration, whenever they say the problem is education and the lack of job training? Do you think that is just an intentional excuse to obfuscate the responsibility that neoliberalism liberalism has for the downturn in the economy
2: i mean i think it certainly fulfills that function look i think a lot of the people putting this argument across are true believers in it right they're ideologues of a certain kind i don't think they're being deliberately disingenuous when they claim this um but it certainly does have that convenient function because and it's funny because it creates a lot of confusion because in the business press what they talk about this is structural reforms they say there's structural problems with the economy but what they mean is simply this that there's a supply side issue around education. And you're totally right that it's not, You know, this is not just an argument that we hear in South Africa. It's all over the world. This tends to be a convenient way out, um, a convenient way of not really having to address deeper root causes. In the US, of course, it's deployed also as an argument against inequality. Why do you have massive inequality? Well, we just haven't given certain people the right jobs. But in reality, I mean, the education problem would resolve itself fairly quickly. Look, I'm not saying that you know, it wouldn't help to have a better education system, but the reality is that the jobs are just not being supplied in South Africa. And in fact, one of the things that gives a lie to this narrative is that there's even pretty high rates of unemployment amongst um, graduates, and amongst graduates specifically of those kinds of disciplines that would supposedly be useful for, for an industrializing e- economy. Um, and so it certainly fulfills this function, whether or not they're doing it, you know, whether or not they're, they're doing it in an entirely cynical way or just because this is what their ideology tells them, I guess, is a more complicated issue.
1: Does the African National Congress, as the ANC, well, first of all, did they have a choice when it came to going down the path of neoliberalism? And do they currently have a choice? Could they abandon neoliberalism without having a horrible, you know, after blowback from the international community on their economy?
2: I mean they certainly had a choice um let's be frank it was an extremely difficult position that they were faced with at the time that they came to power this was a period of real triumphalism for global neoliberalism it was shortly in the wake of the collapse of the soviet union um, it was a period where there were few international allies for the uh, anc to have crafted this left agenda But at the end of the day, it wasn't the case that the ANC pushed as hard as it could have against these external constraints and then found them unwilling, unable to bend them and and therefore fell into a neoliberal program. In fact, it was a much more complicated process where one wing of the ANC had already decided before liberation, that was the wing under Thabo Mbeki, who was the guy who took over from Nelson Mandela, Um, that there was no real alternative to globalizing the economy that made this decision beforehand. Um, There was a significant base in the ANC that was a sort of middle-class, upwardly mobile base that very quickly realized that they had no stake in creating disruption and in scaring away capital by pushing a dangerous economic policy of redistribution. And so there was certainly, it, it it was not the case that it was just external constraints that held the party down, there was a big section of the party that actually actively adopted this strategy and decided it would be in their own interest to do so. And then the real tragedy was that the left in the the alliance, the tripartite alliance, that's between the the trade union, Kassatu, and the South African Communist Party, was just never effective at resisting this. They just were not prepared enough, did not have the right strategy, and then very quickly had a lot of their own key figures um, co-opted into the state and co-opted into this new neoliberal regime that got set up and so there was never really effective internal opposition against the anc from the inside does the anc have an alternative a choice again today uh, absolutely it does um, and i think this is uh, you know one of the tragedies of the road that it's taking at the moment is that we are in a moment where uh neoliberalism globally is losing its sheen the legitimacy of the neoliberal order is is crumbling whether or not neoliberalism itself goes with it there's clearly an opening to begin all sorts of other experiments with more interventionist policies an opening that is being seized by many countries around the world at the same time as um, the ANC government is cleaving to the most orthodox kind of neoliberalism and implementing a very vicious austerity program that is completely out of step with how most countries are responding to this crisis. And again, it's just a, it's, it's just a, it's a significant tragedy because the ANC you know, still conceives of itself as a left party. It still talks about wanting to set up a developmental state. It's still it, under it's, its own official program is the National Democratic Revolution, where it's trying to democratize the state and redistribute wealth, et cetera, in order to prepare the road for a more fundamental transformation down the line but its policies completely do not align with it and we're really seeing the depth of the neoliberal conversion of at least one section of the party given the fact that there is this kind of global opening to be experimenting with other things and yet South Africa is almost an outlier in the extent to which it's it's choosing not to experiment with anything and it's choosing to implement a very conventional um, austerity program in a situation where we're in this catastrophic economic crisis that, again, is is symbolized by this unemployment rate of 42%. So and, certainly the a choice.
1: Uh, and you write how the violence immediately followed uh, the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma, the man arguably most responsible for the parlous state of those ser- social services, as you point out. Al Jazeera reported Zuma was ordered to serve a 15-month term for refusing to testify to a commission probing state corruption under his presidency from 2009 to 2019. Why refuse to testify? How politically partisan or politically independent is the commission probing state corruption?
2: Uh, It's completely independent. Uh, No serious question about that. The commission was set up by Zuma himself. Um, his, his, His ostensible reason for not testifying, the excuse he tried to give was that he claimed the judge running the commission was biased against him. But this was completely spurious. He had no evidence whatsoever to base that. So why he didn't choose a death I, I mean, he knew that it would be a, you know, further public relations disaster for him. He would get skewed, it would be hugely embarrassing. Um, And so he, there's there's some debate as to whether this was his own decision or whether it was terrible legal advice that pushed him to do this. Whatever exactly was going on in his head, he just decided that he's not gonna pitch up for this commission. It seemed like, uh, on the whole, a disastrous strategy because it was inevitable it would end up where he, it, where it did. I mean, he was just very clearly in contempt of court. It was a matter of time before the constitutional court came down on him, which is exactly what they did. And so he's found himself um, in jail. Uh, ended up being a lot earlier than he expected. So I mean, this, you know, he's he's in jail just for these contempt of court charges. Um, but of course he's up against a raft of very serious corruption charges stretching back decades and decades. And so he's facing serious jail time at one point or another. He's ended up bringing it forward a hell of a lot. If we could if we could try to come up with some rationale, if we could try to assess what exactly he was thinking, there's some possibility that he just decided, look, jail's the only way he avoids avoids jail in the long term is through a political strategy. And so he has to give everything to try and maintaining his support and not losing any credibility. And so he thought, here's a trade trade-off: If I go to this commission, it's going to cost me politically. Um, and so I'm going to avoid that at all costs, even if it means there's a chance I go to jail for a short period earlier on. That might be the rationale. It could just be that, you know, he's sort of delusional. He got bad legal advice. Who knows? Either way, it seems not to work out very well for him.
1: Yesterday, Al Jazeera also reported that former South African President Jacob Zuma will be allowed out of jail next week to attend a long-running corruption case in person rather than by video link. These are charges that are unrelated to uh, the other uh, charges that he's in jail for right now. Zuma faces 16 charges of fraud, graft, and racketeering related to the 1999 purchase of fighter jets, patrol boats, and equipment from five European arms firms when he was deputy president. Is his refusal to testify to the Commission on Corruption related to these other 16 charges of fraud, graft, and racketeering that Zuma also faces?
2: Uh, yes. I, I, I don't know exactly what the Commission was going to interview him about because this Commission is specifically about the corruption that occurred during his tenure as president. It's, it's in commission into what we call in, in South Africa state capture. We give it that name because it gives you an indication of just the extent to which the corruption ultimately went. And at the center of it was Zuma and then this family of Indian businessmen, the Guptas, which is why we sometimes refer to their faction as Zupta, combination of these names. Um, and, and what it ended up happening was Zuma had essentially handed over certain functions of the states to this family of, of business people. They were literally appointing cabinet ministers they were summoning cabinet ministers to their private residence and giving them direct orders on which contracts to to allow which tenders to take out etc and so this is why we call it state capture it's literally privatizing certain functions of the state so that's the main focus of this commission um zuma's own history of corruption as you just mentioned goes way further back than then from the time he was deputy president under Thabo becky and the real high point of it was this 100 billion rand arms deal that took place in the late 1990s that various people describe as a kind of original sin of the ANC it was this first big um, uh, big orgy of corruption um, that took place around all these these various arms deals and he was right at the center of that and it was that case that actually then got him deposed as deputy president in 2005, as these corruption charges were leveled against him, Tabu Mbeki, who saw him as a threat, used that as a pretense to have him removed from the ANC. He then somehow managed to set himself up as the head of a coalition of the aggrieved against Tabu Mbeki, most of which uh, were animated by opposition to Mbeki's very neoliberal policies. Mbeki was seen really as the architect of the neoliberal turn in the ANC. Um, and he was a very kind of autocratic ruler internally within the anc a respectful democracy generally in the country but he was quite um, authoritarian undemocratic in terms of how he managed the anc itself and so it faced a lot of opposition by the end of his second tenure and so you have this coalition coming together that's really driven by the left in the anc the communist party the youth league that was under its radical leader at the time Malema. And the trade unions and um zuma despite not having any left-wing credentials himself no history of supporting progressive policies whatsoever in his tenure in power manages to put himself at the head of this coalition and this is how he then deposes zuma and then comes to power in the anc in 2007 um, and managed to just evade those corruption charges dating back from the 90s um, in part because there was evidence of political interference into the charges brought against him and so he he never had to answer for those um whilst he then you know gets involved in the most excessive kind of klept- to kleptocracy um during his tenure as president um and now he's now there's been some kind of resolution to the issues around those initial set of charges so now he's facing two uh two sets of charges related firstly to that initial round of corruption and then the corruption that he was involved in during his presidency
1: You also point out that there is a general Consensus that the unrest had Two main facets on the one hand A seditious campaign waged by Zuma aligned elements as you Point out called ZUPTA intended to uh, Sow instability on The other a more spontaneous Attempt by desperate people with little or No connection to ZUPTA to secure Food and basic necessities of bread Riot but that consensus breaks Down on the question of how to understand The interrelation of these facets And the relative importance of each in the overall arc of events and thus how to characterize the episode as a whole most commentators have tended to strongly foreground one side or the other it, if if there as Ramaphosa Cyril Ramaphosa who is the current president of uh, South Africa as he was deputy president under Zuma how complicit is the current president in the problems leading to food insecurity and inaccessibility of basic necessities that happened during the Zuma administration? Or is he not have does he have no responsibility to those policies whatsoever?
2: I mean, he's as complicit as anybody, I suppose. He's uh, you know, he's been a high ranking member of the ANC, as you said, um, for a long period. He was a deputy president. He never did anything in his period in power, to contest the policies that were responsible for the social crisis that's now exploded in the country, and then since he's come to power, you know he's done he's done certain good things in trying to wind back this period of state capture and trying to recover and repair state institutions and to uh, and to wage a battle against this very kleptocratic faction of the ANC. Um, On the other hand, he's just doubled down, as we said, on the ANC's kind of orthodox macroeconomic neoliberal policies, and it's those that are ultimately responsible for the unemployment and for the deprivation um, that allowed this explosion to occur. So absolutely, he bears complicity in it. So, I mean, that's kind of
1: weird that he's also then telling people that this is an insurrection. And so it would seem like it's an insurrection against his own policies, correct?
2: Well, I mean, he would say the insurrection is is driven by Zuma supporters that are not targeting his economic policies, or not really targeting Ramaphosa himself, but it's just opposition to Zuma having been jailed, uh, and who are, they're also claiming, of course, that there's political interference in the jailing, and that it's Ramaphosa fighting his own factional battles, uh, which there's no there's no real evidence. I mean, I think it was all of this was by the book. This was. Zuma falling afoul of the law on his own terms so he would say that's what's driving the insurrection I mean we should say he's he's um he did fight quite hard within the ANC to make that the dominant label of what's happened in this unrest that it was an insurrection it was a targeted campaign it didn't come out of nowhere there were people driving this with a certain agenda which I think is correct as far as it goes at the same time neither he nor any serious commentator has doubted that the reason it reached the scale that it did was because it was unrest that took place on the basis of this profound social crisis that that we're faced with, and that it essentially um, unleashed all of this existing desperation and disaffection in the society. And um, and so there's no question that we could understand what happened without having the social crisis in the background. I don't think he's really tried to deny that. If you go and look up the first address that he gave in the week during the unrest, I think it was on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. Um, he very clearly foregrounded this issue, um, and uh, since then, his main response to the unrest, uh, you know, along with trying to clamp down on some of the instigators, has been to he, he's made very strong positive moves in favor of a basic income grant. Um, And in fact, they've already extended the emergency cash grant that was rolled out for COVID, which they had cut off a few months before. That was the other kind of immediate um, contextual factor here was that this grant that at least been giving some kind of lifeline to all of these people thrown out of unemployment because of the COVID crisis had been cut off uh, in in a very cruel way in May um, as a result of this very ultra-orthodox neoliberal finance minister that has appointed um, but so they've announced that that'll be extended and it looks like they are going to implement a permanent basic income grant we don't know at what level or exactly how it'll be funded etc there's all sorts of more or less progressive forms that the thing can take but I mean I think the fact that they're pushing hard for big is again an indicator that they are acknowledging that this is a political campaign, but one that was made effective because it was able to harness genuine grievances in the society resulting from this socioeconomic crisis. And there's, there's really a consensus on that, you know, there's no, there's no real, there's no commentator that seriously doubts that this is a major factor um, of what's involved here.
1: The last time I checked, I think that the uh, percentage of people who have been vaccinated in South Africa was below 4%. To what, what has been the impact of COVID-19 on the way that people feel about the African National Congress, how they feel about the ruling party of the ANC? Uh,
2: that's going to be an interesting question to see. Um, we tend not to have very good survey data in the country, so I don't have a clear picture of that yet. The lockdowns certainly have been very unpopular. Um, South Africa has had several very stringent, quite punitive lockdowns. Uh, The initial lockdown actually was one of the more violent, aggressive lockdowns in the world. There was a massive deployment of troops and there were quite a few um, instances of serious abuse and atrocities committed by these troops in, in controlling the population didn't really succeed at all in um containing the spread of the virus i think in part just because of the spatial dynamics in the society you have such a huge portion of the population concentrated in very dense informal settlements uh where there's multiple you know there's multiple families to small shacks multiple people in one room and then the whole community dependent on a a kind of threadbare infrastructure all using the same tap etc no real way you can effect, you can effectively social distance in those conditions. And so these lockdowns have been at the same time very punitive, uh, very harsh on the economy. That's why you have this massive spike in, in unemployment, uh, even though it was already up these astronomical levels, um, and then not even really effective on their own terms. So they've certainly generated a lot of anger. And that anger, I think, peaked once the minimal level of social support that had been provided to people through these cash transfers was then stripped away from them. And so the lockdowns themselves are terribly unpopular. How is that going to affect the ANC? I think it's going to continue to chip away at its support. But, you know, um, as an observer of South African politics for a while, I've come to realize that it's one of the most dangerous predictions to make to think that anything is going to suddenly lead to any dramatic shift in the ANC's um, support. The ANC is just... For reasons we can get can get can get into, um, just been had an incredibly resilient base of loyalty in the society, and this is going to, I think, you know, push the, push the decline in its support further. It has been declining now solidly for the last five or ten years, um, but exactly how big of an impact, how much is it going to create mistrust in the Ramaphosa administration? That's nothing I, I could give you any certain answer on, answer on yet.
1: You mentioned a couple of uh, pieces, a couple of commentary pieces, one at the uh, South African website, New Frame, another one that appeared at Jacobin, and both seem to want to say either this was a completely orchestrated event, all these uh, all the violence following the jailing of President Zuma, former President Zuma, or that it's completely spontaneous. None of them consider the fact that it could be both, as you do, which is one of the most fascinating things about your article. What is missed when, it is, when these events are seen as solely orchestrated or solely spontaneous?
2: Right, I mean, I think, I think there are certain agendas that are driving one or other of these two more extreme interpretations. I think the Fogel piece is less guilty of that. New Frame, um, right from the start of the, of the riots, uh, seemed to be straining quite heavily to try and portray these as mostly a spontaneous bread riot and essentially to downplay the role of active orchestration in in driving this unrest. And I think there's a lot of downsides to that. I mean, in the first place, I think it's just factually inaccurate. We are not yet in a position to have a very clear picture of exactly what was the degree of orchestration and the degree of spontaneity. Um, But certainly past the first few days, what seemed to emerge is it became quite clear that orchestration was a very important role in what happened. Um, that there was a very significant role played in particular by local branches of the ANC that were supportive of Zuma in actively mobilizing the initial people to take steps to create this unrest, and then in creating an environment in which other non-aligned people saw an opportunity to jump in and get involved um, in the looting. So, and, and one of the things that I think ultimately registered the the importance of this dynamic, is that the unrest was mostly confined to areas in which um, Zuma-aligned forces had some kind of influence, and particularly influence through ANC branches. So it was very much concentrated in KZN. And then it spread into uh, Gauteng, that's the province in which Johannesburg is based, the main kind of economic hub. But it did so primarily through the hostels. The hostels are these. Large housing complexes that were initially set up for migrant laborers, migrant mine workers in particular, and manufacturing workers, um, and continue now to host a lot of migrant workers from KwaZulu Natal, many of whom are Zulu and are supporters of Jacob Zuma. And so it was through their access to networks in these hostels that they were able to then create an initial um, a spread of the unrest into Gauteng. So there's that. Um, the evidence is quite is quite clear that there was this very active orchestration by these local branches. Um, and then the second thing is that there is all these other reports of um, targeted uh, targeted attacks on infrastructure of various kinds, food supply chains, um, a chemical plant, ammunition depots, transport infrastructure, etc. Uh, that points to um, points to instigators trying to unfurl a strategic plan to try to maximize the instability that is caused by this unrest, okay? So even supposedly attacks on on communication infrastructure um, as part of this. And so all of these things suggesting that clearly what was happening here was not a purely spontaneous event. There was planning and coordination going on in this. There's another very interesting article that's come out today on Africa as a country. I would encourage your, your listeners to go and read it by a friend of mine, Ryan Brunette, where he also points out that There's some confusion, I think, in this discussion that's caused by drawing this opposition between instigators and then the masses on the streets. In fact, the the Zuma faction that was driving this thing is itself some kind of mass political phenomena, right? It's a a political machinery that has a fairly substantial base in a section of the ANC who are supporters of Zuma and that has uh, links to all sorts of other kinds of criminal organizations, business organizations, civil society organizations, et cetera. And so I think what we saw here was the mobilization of this machinery, which itself has, as I say, some kind of mass basis. It wasn't just, you know, 10 or 12 individual indis- instigators lighting flames here. This was a mobilization that was effectuated, but then clearly created conditions in which, uh, in which it then drew in a huge mass of people who had no direct stake in this political fight, but but just saw an opportunity now to use the unrest and the looting to serve basic needs that they had. So it was both of these things going on. I think the importance of keeping both of the of the two things in mind. Um, you know, firstly, it's it's just a, a matter of, of really getting an understanding of what happened here, but it's it's going to affect the conclusions that we are going to draw from this. If we think what happened was a purely spontaneous bread riot that tells you something different about the political mood of working class people in the country. It tells you that we are on the verge of a bigger breakdown in the political order than that we've currently seen. And it tells you that we should expect as this crisis persists, which is likely to do for the for the medium term, at least that we're going to see occurrences like this um, happening in other parts of the country. And, to, and that's going to that this is going to keep happening There's going to be these spontaneous bouts of serious unrest. Whereas if we point more to the active role of this legitimation and orchestration, it, it gives you um, a slightly more moderated view of, of exactly, you know, how tenuous the situation is in other parts of the country. So I think that's one important thing. Another important thing is just that um, I think we have to understand what's going on here because we also have to have an appreciation of who these forces are that we're up against. And one of the tendencies I've been critical on the left, I think, is uh, in in driving this line of saying that it's a purely spontaneous, it's a bread ride, is that it seems to once again sideline the importance of what we're seeing in terms of this very corrupt network, very powerful, um, uh, corrupt political machinery mobilizing itself as an attack on democracy. And I think one of the problems is the left uh, big sections of the left haven't really come to terms with the threat that is actually posed by these kinds of kleptocratic populist factions in the ANC and outside the ANC that these are political groupings that are very hostile to the constitutional order in South Africa and that are they were they to succeed in coming to power would pose a serious threat to liberal democracy in the country and that need to be resisted in a concerted way by left formations and so i think acknowledging what they've done here and acknowledging the seriousness of this of this assault on democracy is important for some of the you know political conclusions and strategies that we're going to draw from this experience
1: and as you point out the unwillingness to give proper attention to the political forces behind mid-july's events appears symptomatic of a widespread failure on the left to take seriously the growing imperilment of our democracy to you what explains the south africa left's unwillingness to take seriously the growing imperilment of south african democracy does the left have blinders on when considering the ANC's threat to democracy? And if so, what explains why the left will not recognize the ANC's threat to democracy?
2: Um, I'm not entirely sure what explains. I also think, you know, this. I use the left here in a kind of blanket way. It's, it wouldn't be fair to claim that everybody on the left in South Africa is, um, is ignorant of, of what's happening. Um, I think it's just a result of, maybe let's say certain kind of um ultra-left tendency on certain section of the left uh and the tendency has been to say that these uh uh struggles emerging the ANC but these faction fights emerging are just two sides of the elite two sides of the bourgeoisie and neither of them uh has anything to do with the working class uh what you have is a neoliberal faction against the kind of state capture kleptocratic faction But both of these things ultimately are inimical to, you know, real socialism. And therefore, it's not something that we should concern ourselves with. I I don't know if there's a fundamental reason for why that is. I think it's just a certain ideological inclination on the left. And then coupled with the fact that um, the left is in a position of weakness at the moment in South Africa, where we just are not effective at having robust debates about this. We just there's a kind of um, disparity between the intellectual vibrancy of the left in South Africa and its on-the-ground strength and um we we just not we just haven't been as effective as we should have at creating a robust left debate and culture of 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 cross-left discussion in the country and as a result of this I think there are just serious kind of ideological weaknesses in the left around you know pretty important political questions such as this
1: You also point out that as more information is becoming available, it does seem to be pointing to a higher degree of orchestration than appeared to be the case at the start. Leaked WhatsApp messages testify to a very active role played by ANC counselors and other local leaders. They suggest that shopping malls were deliberately targeted because they constituted symbols of, quote, white monopoly capital. Was the insurrection, as the current president calls it, an insurrection by the Zupta against white monopoly cap- capital how accurate is that statement that it was an uprising against white monopoly capital
2: uh well firstly that statement cannot be accurate because i don't believe white monopoly capital exists uh white monopoly capital is the uh bugbear that was created by this Zupta faction. in fact the term comes from this um publicity agency bell pottinger this very infamous marketing firm British marketing firm that has this notorious history of, uh, of representing some of the shadiest characters around the world in their political campaigns, going back to Pinochet. So this um, company took a brief with the Guptas and, and uh, Zuma at the height of their controversy towards the end of Zuma's tenure. And one of the strategies they came up with um, was to, so, so this is kind of the, now the whole the whole, um, the whole uh, optical strategy of the ZUPTA faction um, is to claim that they are waging a struggle against continued white domination of the economy and trying to drive forward what they call radical economic transformation. So actually the bigger name for this faction in the, in the ANC is the RET faction, radical economic transformation. So essentially appropriating the language and the agenda of the left and claiming that what they're trying to do essentially is to take back the country from so-called white monopoly capitalists and so the idea is that large-scale capital big corporations have just remained in the hands of white people completely dominated by white people and that the white people have then used their control of the economy to essentially hem the anc in and to and to push the um democratic project off its off its railings right so the country's still under the control of so-called white monopoly capital i think this analysis is incorrect because i think that even though it's totally true that whites are overwhelmingly disproportionately represented in and in control of large-scale capital given their size of the population which is only eight nine percent there's no sense in which the dominant sections of business are really white capital Um, And in fact, I've done some research at this, looking at the directorships of big corporations and looking at corporate networks. And what you see there is that there's actually been quite a big diversification of control and the creation and integration of a politically very influential black bourgeoisie. Part of the reason we don't see this often is we focus too much on ownership statistics and trying to understand what's happening in the economy. But in fact, when we look at directorship and we look at really who's 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 in who's in day-to-day control of these organizations the capitalist class is quite diversified even large-scale capitalist class right so the statement cannot be true in that pure sense that it was against white monopoly capital but even more generally uh it's not you know this they the so they, they're just constantly trying to bring up this bugbear of white monopoly capital um but there's no sense in which they could have successfully framed recent events as an attack on white monopoly capital, because that was just so distant from the chain of events that led up to this unrest. I mean, it was quite obvious that what they were reacting to is Zuma's jailing. Of course, they constantly try to claim that Zuma is being victimized by white monopoly capital, that everything happening to him is uh, an indication of the kind of conspiratorial behind the scenes power being wielded by white monopoly capitalists but i don't think that is um, a narrative that they've been terribly successful in creating traction around and so this is one of the other features of the strange situation in in south africa is that zuma himself certainly and the ret faction in general has been extremely powerful in the anc and it's their power within the anc that makes them i think such a threat to democratic institutions in the country, but they're actually, it turns out, not very popular otherwise, right? Outside, Zuman retains kind of just narrow majority popularity in KZN. Outside of that, he has dismal popularity ratings. And the same could be said of all of his allies in the ANC who are aligned to this radical economic transformation state capture project. And so this has been their attempt to give their kind of narrow, acquisitive agenda some kind of bigger legitimacy by saying it's this attack on white monopoly capital, but it doesn't seem to be a narrative that's widely believed in the public. You also
1: write that the situation remains highly fluid, but at the time of writing of this writing, there seems to be a decent chance that the unrest will backfire on the Zupta coalition. But, uh, Niall, can it backfire in a way that actually challenges the dominant nature of the ANC over all levels of South African politics, whether it's top-down or grassroots, bottom-up politics? Can uh, Can this backfire in a way that actually challenges the
2: ANC's power? So, I mean, I think it's likely to backfire on that faction, the ANC. Is it likely to backfire on the ANC itself? That is much less clear. And again, in the absence of strong survey data, et cetera, it's hard to predict exactly how this will play out. So on the one hand, you know it's, it's a major social crisis that wreaked havoc on people's lives, that was extremely distressing, that led to massive social uh, loss of life. It's a crisis in which most people agree the ANC has direct complicity. And so in theory, any event like this should chip away fairly heavily at the ANC's support. The difficulty comes in the fact that people see two different ANCs in a certain sense, There's, and because of this factionalization within it, right? And so there is some chance that it, in effect, has a kind of opposite effect, because what we saw was, um, as a, you know, the headline of the article, a terrifying vision of our future. In particular, if these populist kleptocratic forces are able to continue running a mark and accruing power, What it might end up doing is causing certain people to want to give stronger support to Ramaphosa because he represents the uh, main line of defense against these kind of groupings taking over the ANC. So he had already been on the front foot in this battle within the ANC. He'd won a string of key victories against this radical economic transformation faction, including the suspension of their leader from his position as the Secretary General of the ANC. And and most people are breathing a huge sigh of relief at this because it looked like that there was a chance that Ramaphosa actually might get deposed within the ANC. And you might have this grouping once again coming to power and then essentially continuing the project of state capture, but this time with perhaps an even more authoritarian anti-democratic twist to it. And so there is, I think, a sense among a lot of people of wanting to support Ramaphosa as the main line of defense against this very scary alternative of what the ANC could become if he loses support. So this is one thing. Then the second thing is that because he's taken this welfare rather than repressive response to the unrest, and it seems like his main action is going to be to roll out a basic income grant, that is another thing out of which he might gain some kind of political capital. So on balance, Who's to say what exactly effect this is going to have? My guess is it will be on balance still something that continues to chip away at the ANC support. It is on this downward trajectory, um, the the ANC support in the country. And I think this unrest will push that further along, but I don't think it's going to be any kind of dramatic inflection point just yet.
1: One last question for you, Niall. We've been speaking with South African writer Niall Reddy, who wrote the Africaisacountry.com article, a terrifying vision of South Africa's future. You can follow Nile on Twitter at red underscore Niall, and you can find some of Niall's writing at the Alternative Information and Development Center website. A-I-D-C dot org dot Z-A One last question for you now And as we do with all of our guests Our final question is what we call The question from hell The question we hate to ask You might hate to answer Our audience is going to hate the response So you write at the, You conclude That a final way That we may emerge better off Through all of this Is if the crisis jolts the left In the same way it has elites The riots have given us A terrifying vision of South Africa's v- future If the current trajectory is not arrested. If we don't find a way to channel popular discontent into the building of mass progressive movements, then it will instead fuel anarchy, nativism, and inevitably authoritarianism. How close is South Africa with ANC leadership already acting in an authoritarian fashion?
2: Um, I would actually say not that close we went some way down that road with Zuma. um, And in particular, through his attempts to gain direct personal control over the security agencies, etc. of the country. But even there, you know, he was he was setting things up for a more serious authoritarian turn. He didn't fundamentally get there. He didn't undermine the constitutional order. He didn't he didn't usurp the independence of the judiciary. He didn't totally undermine the rule of law. And uh, thankfully, it seems he didn't make successful inroads into politicizing the military, which is one crucial way in which, thankfully, I think South Africa is, to some degree, a little bit more insulated from a kind of full-blown authoritarian term. Under Ramaphosa, the trend has been actually away from all of that. It's been towards, you know, trying to reestablish the impartiality and the independence of the state and to uh, undergird and support the constitutional order in the country and so in that sense i think we're not actually we haven't actually haven't taken south africa hasn't joined this kind of third wave of authoritarianism which is, is sleep is sweeping the globe whether it does so or not depends on ultimately how all of these current political battles play out so one way in which this might be the reality that we're confronting quite soon is if somehow this RET faction recomposes itself and manages to successfully challenge Ramaphosa for the, for power within the ANC. Cause I think they would drive that kind of agenda. I think almost the more likely thing is that we're going to continue to see a disintegration of the ANC and the, this faction being pushed out of it. And we're going to start to see forms of authoritarian populism emerging outside of the ANC and perhaps taking forms that mirror a little bit more what's happening in other parts of the country. So I think one of the weird reasons that South Africa has ultimately been a little bit protected from this wave of authoritarianism is that the populist factions in the country do not have the support of big business in the way that they do in other countries. Because we have this strange post-colonial society in which there are major cleavages within the elite and the middle class, it's meant that the kind of class uh, alliances and coalitions that have supported populist takeovers in other parts of the country, so middle class-driven populism as you've seen in India and Brazil, for example, and other places where the elites and middle class have aligned very closely, have not been possible in South Africa. And so we haven't, we haven't gone. South Africa is, in this sense, kind of exceptional and might be something that despite other conditions that would seem to predispose us towards this kind of authoritarianism, like this very entrenched social crisis, might mean that we don't actually take that route. And at this stage it just it just is very impossible to predict anything because it all hinges on the question of what happens when the ANC's hegemony finally decomposes and breaks down and this is just something that we haven't the whole post apartheid period has been characterized by overwhelming um untouchable electoral dominance of the ANC and we just don't know what the political map starts to look like when that eventually comes to an end as it has to
1: Niall, thank you. so. By the way, that was an excellent answer to a question from hell. Thank you so much for being on our show. Niall Reddy wrote the Africaisacountry.com article, A Terrifying Vision of South Africa's Future. And you can follow Niall on Twitter at Red underscore Niall. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I truly appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate it.
1: All right. Take care. If what you just heard from now already on the ANC is a threat to democracy in South Africa, if that made you angry, sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have had, or made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this... Really is hell show your Support by either becoming a subscriber to our Weekly bonus friday podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is Hell or go to this is and click on support See all the ways you can contribute to completely Listener supported this is hell remember Without you we got nothing so thanks For your support in a few minutes Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth During this week's moment Jeff seeks Relief in our nation's capital we Are looking for new producers and Board operators here on this is hell if You're interested in running the board here on This Is Hell, like Alex is doing today, email us at chuck at this dot com and or alex at this dot com. Actually, I'm gonna be out of town, so. Just email Alex, Alex at this is hell.com and tell us why you would like to join us here on This Is Hell. Producers not only get access to a professional studio for their own projects, but they also get a modest stipend for producing each episode. Other perks include becoming friends with Mel, the semi-feral bark cat. Yes, we are, again, looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you're interested in running the board as Egon, Jess, Richard, and Alex do, email us at chuckatthisishell.com. Or Alex at this is dot com, probably best that you email Alex at this is hell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week to once every other week or just once a month here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, twenty two fifty-one West Devon Avenue. With shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Thursday, this is your opportunity to have access to a great studio for your own projects. And like I said, the position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. Again, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or alexatthisishell.com, and you may be the newest producer here on This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this. Or today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Kindly tell us how listeners are responding so
0: far. In a rich person's voice. So, where are you summering? Where are you summering? Old pal fart 69 says hell and posted a photo of what looks to be either a sunset or a sunrise. But instead of one big-ass sun, there's one big sun in one, two, three, four, five... Little tiny suns around it, okay. Uh, which is scarier. Maybe this is a, the UFO narrative the media's been trying to push <laughs> on us. I don't know. It uh, looks kind of hellish. Where are you summering? Where are you summering? Donald H. says, summering. Heck, with everything I've had to do, I'll be lucky to get out of town. Joshua L. says, not summering, but falling into debt. <laughs> David R. says, our private villa in a poorly run Democrat city. <laughs> <laughs> Mason W. says... Who said that one uh, again? That was David R. Okay. And Mason W. says, Elon's Martian colony. I hear it's a balmy negative... ADF this time of year with a UV index of 43. Can't wait to get a nice tan while I work to pay off my indenture. (laughs)
1: So, David R., I'm gonna to have to have you repeat that one, because that's already one of my favorites. Uh, so again, you can leave your answer to this. We scratch mail at our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the time that Jeff ends his moment of truth, so we can read yours on air. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast. Which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time Is podcast at the same place shortly after And if you do subscribe, you get access to all of our past Patreon podcasts So it's like a whole other year of this is hell On Patreon tomorrow, speaking of the question from hell being Where are you summering I will tell you the who, what, when, where, why, and how of my annual summering At the same damn place with the same damn problems Well, maybe not all of the problems There are rumors The exposed cloth wiring that was installed while Harry Truman was still president has been replaced, and the linoleum floors that sweat due to vapor lock because they never constructed the place correctly that makes the place into an ice rink. That's supposedly been addressed, but I can't imagine how that could happen. Uh, No word on the broken window that was replaced sometime in the aughts with cardboard and duct tape that now lets in mosquitoes and earwigs, or the roof that leaks, or the 40 foot oak tree that's growing Into the roof Directly under which We sleep every night Look the, the place is a dump But it's our dump for a couple weeks a year And on tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast I will do my best to try and explain Why I absolutely love the crap shacks Where we stay with family every year I'll tell you one reason why it's damn cheap We'll also be sharing an interview from 10 years ago to the day, a conversation we had on August 6th, 2011 with everybody's favorite, Richard D. Wolfe, professor emeritus of of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, currently a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New York, of the New School in New York. Richard is also host of the the, uh, syndicated program Economic Update with Richard D. Wolfe. Uh, his recent, most recent book at the time was Capitalism Hits the Fan And he was on to discuss his most recent writing at the time Including a PC ad at Truthout Headlined A Tale of Two Lootings The two lootings Richard saw in play Were the attack on jobs, wages, and benefits Which loots the working class And the attack on the federal government's budget Which loots the government So it ha- is unable to help the working class And what do you know Richard was correct And the system is still being looted but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly "This Is Hell" Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. It's a podcast, shortly after, at the same place, and that place is again Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell live from Hangover Country. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line.
3: relief in the capital of capital welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink we shall put the lincoln memorial here said the planner though it would be some fourscore and several years before lincoln would even be a target of the assassin john wilkes booth The planner indicated the proposed location for the monument with a sharp rap of his billiard cue, which he used instead of a normal pointing stick. This habit of his had begun when he discovered he could get in a quick game of eight ball or two after a meeting before his wife expected him home, but only if he already had the cue in his hand, perfectly chalked and ready to shoot. He indicated an absurdly long rectangle he'd drawn upon the vellum between the Futurological Memorial and what appeared to be a hill. This, he intoned, will be an absurdly long reflecting pool. "'What will it be reflecting?' asked George Washington, all innocent-like. "'The absurdly tall penis we shall erect in your honor,' the planner said. "'The planner's name is unimportant.' It's been lost to posterity due to an oversight. I'll look it up later. Oh, alright, let's call him Peter. An absurdly tall, pyramid shaped penis totem, Peter specified. Hmm, said Washington. You know, Peter. I think I'd prefer an obelisk. Then an obelisk you shall have, Peter interjected with great vigor, whacking the stick on the parchment or vellum or onion skin or whatever they used to draft their plans on back in the late 18th century. Huzzah for Peter the Planner! Rose a cheer from all the founders assembled, except for John Adams, a well-known killjoy. He was simply a crabby Appleton. There's no other way to describe him. Some described him as irascible, but I don't really know what that means. I'll look it up later when I look up Peter the Planner's real name. And so, that shining mall on the Potomac was planned and agreed upon eventually, but they forgot one thing. They forgot to provide anywhere to pee. And that is how I, your bumbling narrator, found himself relieving his bladder under a tree across the street from a giant bust of that great American, Albert Einstein. I had walked quite a long way from the Smithsonian Castle, that's a real thing, to the reflecting pool in front of the Capitol, the water in which was far too choppy to reflect anything. I stared at the Capitol for a long time, trying to feel a remarkable feeling, but I didn't. Maybe I will later. I did remember to ruminate upon the fact that a gaggle of fascists had attempted on January 6th, 2021 at the incitement of that swollen prostate, Donald Pooh Trump, to prevent the certification of one of the most free and fair elections in the Western Hemisphere, which is not necessarily saying a whole lot, by bludgeoning their way into the eggshell roof, rappelling down into the rotunda, and butchering the legislators comprising the chewy center of the Tootsie Dome. How many hicks does it take to get to the legislative center of the Tootsie Dome? "'I never made it without secret help from fascist coup conspirators "'inside the legislature itself,' said Mr. Turtle. "'Ask Mr. Owl.' But Mr. Owl was working on an op-ed about how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's pandering to the most plentiful likely GOP voters in his state is now killing an average of 58 Floridians every day from COVID-19 despite the abundance of opportunities to curb the virus's spread through reasonable policies instead of dunceley antics. All over this benighted nation of louts and floozies, governors of the spectacularly dumb variety are killing their constituents with duncey antics. So when I gazed upon the shiny Capitol building, that bicameral House of Senators and Representatives, with its most unbelievable proliferation of flights of stairs everywhere in front on the sides, running from its tear ducts and ears, disfiguring its cheeks as if it were suffering from stairway acne. Like, who needs so many stairs? I felt no horror, nor any rush of affection, nor flush of patriotic allegiance, but a sense of that I would soon need to pee. And so many of the museums were closed Mondays and Tuesdays. And what the hell were all these other apes doing with the waste building up in their bowels and bladders? What the holy hell was the matter with everyone? Oh my God. What is with the dearth of public restroom facilities in the United States? Not just in Manhattan, where the air is redolent with the results. Not just in major metropolises, but here in the capital of the nation, ostensibly a shining symbol of our values, our strength, our compassion, our soul. What are we saying to the world here? This National Mall is a portrait of the core of neoliberalism's vile message. The basic functions of your body are not welcome in the society of business as usual. They are an interruption in the ritual symphony of routine tasks. They are an embarrassing rupture in the socioeconomic fabric. You must find a secret location to void your bodily waste. Scuttle across the barren plain, little man, in your Freudian toilet-training panic. You vulnerable insect with your human weakness of needing to sleep procreate, eat, drink, defecate, and urinate? Don't you see that the world we've designed has no place for your weakness, little human? Out with you, out onto the street to live among the trash, where those who police human weakness can buffet you from pillar to post. No, of course you can't come into the State Department to use one of our toilets. No, you can't come into the Spy Museum not without paying an admission fee of $25, which will go directly into the pockets of the official subverters of the global popular will, soil your clothes, puny human, that we may pick you out of the crowd by stench and stain and dump you in the wilderness we've made toxic and treacherous with our pollution. And so... I was forced to find the rare spot of verdure, unguarded by the authorities and hidden from the public on the corner of Constitution Avenue and 22nd Street, just out of sight of the big bronze Einstein. A view of the enormous statue of Abraham Lincoln, hidden deep within the forest of pillars in his memorial, would not be mine that day. No prescience on the part of Peter the Planner would make an iota of difference, because while he somehow divined the existence of a national hero some fourscore and several years thence, that public planning visionary somehow failed to predict that people would need to use the bathroom. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, uh, good day. Already
1: then. So, Jeffy, I'm gone for the next couple of weeks. So you don't have a moment of truth again till three weeks from
3: now. Holy moly! we oh, you're going on vacation. I'm
1: going to the lake. I'm looking forward to going to which, the lake.
3: Which lake? Lake St. Clair Like You're
1: no, to Lake St. Clair. You die in that lake. There's lake a horrible under, <laughs> a Horrible undertow in that <laughs> lake. And the smelts are running, by the way, in Lake St. Clair right now. I just found out.
3: Oh, can we eat them, or will we die? <laughs> I think you'll die.
1: But I'll talk to you in a couple, a few weeks, Jeffy. Until then, all right. Yes. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, please remind us, how are our listeners responding to this week's question from Hell? And what the hell is this week's question from Hell?
0: This week's question from Hell is in a rich guy voice. So where are you summering? So where are you summering? A couple more responses. Uh, Hypocrite Reader, a new issue out right now. Uh, I hear the Overlook Hotel is lovely this time of year. (laughs) Rob H. says, does getting high on the roof of my works parking garage during lunch breaks count? No. And finally, Joel G. says, on Joe Manchin's houseboat.
1: <laughs> okay, the answers that I liked the most were Ramsey saying that he is summering in a 1996 Chevy Cavalier. I hope that is not the case, but if it is, hey, at least you got a roof over your head and doors around you. Adam saying the Whole Foods toilet and Steven saying the downstairs toilet. And S. Peter saying, Monster Island, look, they're misunderstood, and COVID hasn't reached there yet. Beats Lollapalooza Town any time. And I also like David R. saying, a private villa in a poorly run Democratic city. Alex, any suggestions as to which is
0: your favorite? Uh, Stephen Smith's downstairs toilet. As someone, I'm I'm not trying to brag here, I also have a downstairs toilet, <laughs> and it does feel like a vacation every time I'm in <laughs> Uh, But also, in a poorly run Democrat villas, or uh, in a private villa in a poorly run Democrat city is also very funny. I
1: like a a poorly run Democratic villa. That sounds like a good one. Uh, Let's go with, geez, downstairs toilet. I really liked as well, because there is something liberating about a downstairs toilet. By the way, I don't have a downstairs toilet, but I have used my basement as a place to relieve myself. Uh, Let's go with David R. David, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell because you said you are summering at a private villa in a poorly run Democratic city. My answer to this week's Question from Hell is I will be summering in a state of inebriation that starts immediately after tomorrow's bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, where I will be telling you about where, I should say when I will be telling you about where I summer every freaking year. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet for the show in a couple of weeks?
0: Yeah, it's like, what's that, August 20-something? 23rd, I think? Yeah, yeah. so uh, on Monday, Gio Maher will be on to talk about his book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. And he's been on the show before under a different name. And then uh, yeah, he had more letters in his name last time. Yeah. Uh, and then on Tuesday, uh, historian Ed Watts will be on. I'm real excited about this one to talk about his book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea.
1: And then on Wednesday, uh, Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, we got a whole new schedule that we're going to be telling you about when we come back on Monday, August 23rd. And uh, hopefully we're going to have a guest on homelessness, possibly. A listener suggested that as a topic, and it's something that we haven't discussed on our show. And uh, I want to thank this week's guests, including Sabian Fitzula. She wrote the Roar Magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protest to Political Liberation. And during that conversation and in her writing, she talks about how people in Europe will support The people of Chiapas, the uh, Palestinians But they still have this racism Towards Roma, the people just outside Their front door, and it made me think about How we don't cover homelessness enough on this show So we're going to Hopefully have that as a topic when we come back By the way, this week's Hangover Cure is Go Swim in the Sea I also want to thank other guests who are on this week Paul A. Passavant, author of Policing Protest The Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection Follow Paul on Twitter at P. Passavant You can follow Sabian on Twitter, by the way, at Sabi Shutka on Twitter. Uh, also thanks to Shane Dillingham, author of Oaxaca and Resurgent. You can follow Shane on Twitter at ASDillingham and you can find out more about Shane at alanshanedillingham com. Thanks to today's guest, South African writer Niall Reddy, who wrote the Africa is a country article, a terrifying vision of South Africa's future. You can follow Niall on Twitter at at Red Underscore Nile, and we are looking forward to seeing all of you at the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art, which is happening all day, Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music, an art opening, and a raffle of This Is Hell-related, or inspired, or adjacent prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act, or you would like to perform yourself, or you are an artist who would like to recommend an artist for an art op- for the art opening, email us at chuckatthisishell.com. And maybe you or your suggestion Will be performing music or displaying their art That's the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show This Is Art Saturday, September 18th Send us your suggestion for musical acts to perform Or arts to show their work ASAP to Chuck At ThisIsHell.com Of course that party will be happening Downstairs at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood Also known as Little India 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 Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka For running the board this week Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth And Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History Special thanks to Theron Humiston Just because Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com Slash Hell when I will be getting ready to go on vacation By sharing with you where I go summering Why I summer Who I summer with What I do when I summer And the what pretty much covers the how I summer And when I summer And that's easy It's Summer, And we'll be playing an interview we did 10 years ago tomorrow with economist Richard D. Wolfe on the looting of the working class and the government that was happening back then and still persists 10 years later despite Richard's warnings. Who knew that everybody wouldn't stop looting just because Richard said so? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, GapTooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words,
3: everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a cellar, uh. and my demon tries to knock me down